This is not a review. This is an impact statement. This is Dr. Scarelove. Attention. The following may contain material deemed unsuitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. More importantly, this episode may contain spoilers. Consider yourself warned. If you have not seen the film or films featured in this episode, the Scarelove Society recommends pausing now, then returning with the stories fresh in your mind. Still here? Okay, let's open the door. Peru is dangerous. We can't just go invade a country because they're doing something that we think is immoral. I know. I just think I should be doing something about the rainforest. They are wearing matching green fluorescent coveralls and scuffed blue hard hats. Their hands are calloused. Soil is caked into their nail buds. There are figure eights of grime around their goggles, and, once removed, their hazy eyes look out from clean spaces like fresh wallpaper beneath a picture frame in a smoker's house. They have chainsaws and bulldozers. Encircling the workers protecting them are men with sunglasses and radios. The silent men are hidden beneath flak jackets. The safeties of their rifles are off. All around the two groups, trees crash to the jungle floor. The indigenous peoples that once used these trees as landmarks and shelter run from the vicious sound of sharp metal teeth grinding into wet wood. They run from the huff and chug of machinery. They cannot outrun bullets. It's time to make a difference. There was a time, though extremely difficult to remember now, where we had to wait until 6 or 11 p.m. to find out what was going on in the world. News anchors were the messengers, delivering succinct reportage on current events from local, national, and global stages. Huddled around televisions in bars or dorm rooms, in sunken living rooms or factory break rooms, people were greeted with flashes of weather, politics, disasters, and more. Often there, too, was coverage about dissent, unrest, about protest. Political or environmental, the issue was often discussed briefly, and viewers were given grainy footage of starry-eyed college students and old hippies chained to backhoes, holding signs over the edge of Greenpeace vessels, or chanting about whatever cause they were fighting for or against. Think of the thousands who gathered in the Capitol Mall to protest the Vietnam conflict, or the repeated image of Rodney King on a sun-baked Los Angeles freeway surrounded by four uniformed attackers, or the lone briefcase holder in Tenement Square. These have become iconic, revolutionary, and they were brought to you by your local news affiliate. Humans were eager, waiting with bated breath to find out the latest developments. 25 years ago, televisions were rolled into classrooms on carts to let students watch the O.J. Simpson verdict. Now, all we have to do is unlock our smartphones and hope we have signal. 
The days of communal discovery are over. We no longer have to wait, then commiserate with family or friends or even strangers about the tragic state of the planet. Facebook, YouTube, and any number of online news forums, and most importantly, Twitter, allow us to know everything that's going on immediately, or at the speed of our 4G connections. We no longer have to search. Instead, notifications let us know when, where, and what is happening, but above all, what is trending. Our phones will be our protection, he said. Alejandro was everything that a college student activist should be. Handsome, with dark skin, stubble, and untamed hair. He spoke eloquently, powerfully, and above all, convincingly. He's the type of guy you couldn't help but listen to. He made you feel what he felt. He made you understand. He made you outraged. Alejandro had plans and goals. He had ideas, a wealth of them, and spit them out over circles of drums and lattes. He looked as if he gave up the hacky sack in favor over a folded up acceptance speech for student body president. He could convince you of anything he wanted. This, of course, was exactly what Justine needed. She is slim, fresh-faced, and shouldering the image and demeanor of a young woman who has just left an overprotective nest, ready to strike out on her own for the first time. She's a dedicated student, eager to learn and quick to avoid the pitfalls of distraction in college, which, in New York City, are plentiful. She shares a dorm room with Casey, the opposite of everything Justine represents, and, in this way, a vessel for Justine to live vicariously through. Casey is blonde and always hungover, while Justine has long brunette hair and keeps her social life moderate. Casey is open and eager about her sexuality, inviting various partners back to her darkened and messy side of the dorm room, while Justine lies solo on her tidy half of the room. Here, we have the standard separation between characters and their predestined stereotypes, the over-sexualized blonde and the virgin brunette. If this were a slasher film, who'd be the first to go? It is apparent from the onset that Justine needs to branch out to make her mark, so to speak. While her friend and dorm mate seems to be achieving this through an active sex life, Justine yearns for something bigger, something outside of herself. After a chance encounter with Alejandro and his followers, Justine finds her purpose, her cause, the deforestation of the Amazon. The terror of gas companies and private militias, the lack of public awareness for such an important cause. She initially takes this information back to her dismissive father, who just so happens to work for the United Nations. She's used to going to daddy for help. When his interest isn't piqued, she sees this as the opportunity to make a stand. The problem, however, is that Justine has always had that lifeline. Dismissive or absent as he may be, there is a conscious or unconscious notion that he's always been there to help her if she needed, through money, or, more importantly, the use of his career and influence to keep her safe. In the words of Jarvis Cocker, but still, you've never had to get it right, because when you're laid in bed at night, watching roaches climb the wall, if you called your dad, he could stop it all. Her father's pandering and dismissal, it can be argued, pushes Justine further into activism, much like any other young person attempting to break out of the shadow cast by their parents. And she goes all in, assuring Alejandro that she'll join them on their trip to Peru. 
She will wear the mask and chain herself to a tree. She will chant with the group, and she will hold her phone between the ancient jungle and the militant industrialism coming to destroy it. Along with her new friends, Justine will ensure the cause goes viral. In the 21st century, what could be more powerful than that? Though we can't scoff when trending topics are positive, like those about dogs on skateboards or the world's largest pizza. But by and large, the majority of trending topics are about outrage. Outrage against injustice, corruption, violence, and more litter our feeds. Consider the hashtags Black Lives Matter or Me Too, and the power these have had on reshaping awareness in the overall narrative of America, even the world. These movements and messages have been incredibly helpful in bringing about change, and their effects will, hopefully, continue to be felt for many years to come. The 24-hour news cycle has allowed us to constantly be informed, and has given us the ability to break open numerous realms of corruption and injustice through sharing and retweeting, but it's also perpetuated a new style of protester, the naive one. Please, before sharing and retweeting that Dr. Scarelove should be boycotted, hear us out. This is not a condemnation of social media outlets or the rise of awareness in America and internationally, but a simple look at the blanket of safety the relative anonymity of the internet can have. On a whole, most of the people who are joining the trending conversations are concerned. They want to raise attention and put a stop to whichever cause they've latched onto. But what about the rest? What about those who use these online platforms for personal gain? How many people use the current outrage as a stepping stone for visibility to gain scores of followers? Those with dubious intentions like these never will, hopefully, outrank or outnumber those who truly care or want to bring about change. But one fact does remain. The staggering amount of individualized coverage about one issue, with honorable intentions or not, creates a world where only those who scream the loudest can be heard. Or, should we say, whoever hits their keyboard hardest or the most. If watching footage of a foreign war, they don't need to walk up the steps of federal buildings to protest. They don't need to paint poster boards with slogans. They don't need to leave the house. All over the world, as you listen to this, brave men and women are in the streets protesting and bless them for it. But what about those who never leave the confines of their recently renovated craftsman homes and gentrified neighborhoods, save for trips to and from Publix or Whole Foods or soccer practice, and protest from their smartphones or computer nooks? What about those who troll any and everyone from the protective boundaries of their parents' basements? The bottom line is this. For all the good social media and the 24-hour news cycle has done, it has also created the false notion that online personas and firewalls give them strength. So what happens when the naivety comes into physical contact with the very foreign issue they've been protesting about? Horror, pure and simple. The Green Inferno is inspired by Occupy Wall Street. It's about kids that latch onto causes that maybe they don't know everything about or don't believe in or latch onto it because it's trendy. I kept noticing 
hashtag of the week. It's everyone going, how can you not care? Kony 2012, child soldiers in Uganda. You get the feeling that now there are these kind of social justice warriors that are out there to make you feel bad about everything. Social activism can be great. It can be in this amazing vehicle for change, but so many people, I feel, doing it not because they believe in the cause, but because they want to look like they care. They love being on the homepage of Reddit. I want to see kids like that just get eaten, eyeballs torn out, get their tongue sliced off, genitals mutilated. I want full on cannibal gore. That for me is hilarious. So Green Inferno is a terrifying movie, but in a very perverse way, it's really fun to watch these kids get. The trip down to the Amazon rainforest actually goes off without a hitch. Alejandro's assembled group dutifully takes various forms of transportation, airline, bus, small puddle hopper plane, and finally boats onto the Amazon itself. What is important to note during the journey is the various signs that most of the group are very much like Justine. Sheltered, protected, and above all, naive. <clears throat> they walk around with their cell phones held to the sky like weather barometers. They ignore food because they're vegan, gluten-free, or have other dietary restrictions. They spray themselves with ridiculous amounts of bug repellent because they didn't realize how dense the insect population was. They ask locals for weed because, well, this is a third world country and everyone knows where to get drugs, right? This can be summed up with Lars, who asks for their small boat to pull over so he can find a bathroom, as if public facilities existed in the middle of uncharted rainforest. He's so used to the comfort of convenience that the notion of urinating off the side of the boat or taking a machete into the brush to do so in private is, to him, appalling. We live in a time now where even camping 10 miles outside of a major city or a national park and poor signal makes our stomachs drop. Early on, we can see just how unprepared these individuals are and in some ways wish they would have just stayed home and hid in the blue light of their phones to try and raise awareness they seek. Arriving at the recently clear-cut section of rainforest, the group hurriedly disguises themselves and begins to chain themselves to trees and machinery. Their cell phones are out and taping, uploading the signal to the web through access to a satellite uplink. They chant about the horror of what the gas company is doing and how harmful it is to the indigenous people. They create chaos. It isn't long before the hired paramilitary security force, read mercenaries, arrive to extinguish the situation. They quickly take aim at the protesters, Justine included. But there's a problem. The padlock provided for her won't latch, making her chain around the trunk of an ancient tree useless. The armed men pull her away and put her on her knees, the barrel of a pistol inches from her face. Alejandro, with the lens of his cell phone camera unflinchingly pointing at the scene, begins screaming that Justine's father works for the UN, and that everyone in the world will see the murder. It isn't a change of heart that saves her life, 
but the fear that going viral might bring too much unwanted exposure to the deforestation and militant guards using lethal force to carry it out. It doesn't hurt that Justine is pretty, or that she resembles the very image of white privileged distress that America drools over. And her father's career certainly helps the cause. And when Justine notices Alejandro give his girlfriend a conniving look, she realizes this was purposeful. They brought her along because of her image and her father, not because of her passion to change, nor her desire to actually save the rainforest. They knew it would add to their viral status. The whole point of this activism was the preservation of life, both of human, like the tribe's people, and of the nature they live in. Yet Justine's is, it seems, expendable, if it means Alejandro's cause, and thus, his own global visibility will make it into the top 10 trending hashtags. In this way, the actual purpose of stopping the deforestation and genocide of indigenous peoples is outweighed by the idea of it. Having the world think you care and are trying to change something, even if you aren't really doing more than holding a camera. In modern times, it would appear, it's better to virtually trend than to physically defend. We cannot continue talking about this film without first talking about its most obvious reference, the Coney 2012 movement, spearheaded by director and activist Jason Russell. Perhaps you remember seeing the hashtag Stop Coney on Twitter, or maybe you were one of those who watched the viral documentary, viewed over 83 million times in the first two weeks. Perhaps you even bought your own Cover the Night kit, complete with t-shirts, buttons, and posters to raise awareness. The viral documentary's purpose was to promote the charity Invisible Children Incorporated and their campaign to stop Ugandan cult and militia leader Joseph Kony and have him arrested by the end of 2012. In order to help the cause and spread awareness, viewers of the documentary on YouTube and Vimeo were encouraged to participate in Cover the Night, where they could buy posters and spread them all over their towns in the dead of night to raise awareness. When people woke up for their day, they would see the posters, and, in theory, they're doing everything right. They've used the internet to gain awareness, and people were paying attention. Celebrities like Oprah and Taylor Swift even helped spread the campaign. But what went wrong? The Cover the Night event took place on April 20th, 2012. The turnout was much, much smaller than expected. People who claimed they would attend did not and there was a lack of organization. People didn't know where to meet, and in some large cities like Vancouver and Brisbane, fewer than 50 people showed up to spread the word or cover the night. The problem? It's a lot easier to hit that retweet button or sit and watch a YouTube video than it is to actually leave your house in the middle of the night to put up posters that you have to buy yourself. We can't only blame the viewers and followers of the Coney 2012 movement for not going beyond their computers. We also have to look at those in charge. The producers of the documentary and charity group Invisible Children came under a lot of scrutiny for engaging in slacktivism, defined as a person who takes some sort of action for a cause, like retweeting or liking, that has little to no effect beyond making that individual feel like they've contributed. Additionally, many viewed the film as oversimplifying the situation, 
and painting this complex issue in black and white terms, whereas there were many different moving parts. Even Invisible Children responded to the criticism, saying that they were trying to, quote, explain the conflict in an easily and understandable format, unquote. The viewers in Africa were left angry and wondered why there was so much time spent on the filmmakers in Kony and not the victims. However, viewers far away from Africa were led to be outraged, led to believe that they had to help, and ultimately led to the online shop, just a click away. In a sense, there was profit being made at the expense of genocide and corruption in Africa. The leader of the armed militia group receives a phone call. Words are exchanged. It's obvious that he's been ordered not to kill Justine or any members of the activist group, despite his demeanor and attitude that suggests he's more of a shoot and bury type of guy. Instead, they turn the college students over to the local authorities who start the process of getting them out of the country. They take another small plane back towards civilization and the group celebrate with booze and excited chatter about their victory. Well, everyone but Justine. She knows she was used, her naivety exploited. Witnessing the look Alejandro shared with his girlfriend removed the blinders. The charismatic face of their little group didn't care much about anyone but himself. You might think his girlfriend, Kara, might have come into consideration, but his behavior after her death soon negates that prospect. An engine flames out, and the pilots lose control of the airplane. The celebration turns into nightmarish screaming as the plane breaks apart in the tree line and plummets to the rainforest floor. Half the passengers are killed, while the rest struggle to free themselves and each other from the wreckage. They are, for a moment, lucky to be alive, although they will soon find that dying in a plane crash would have been a welcome end. You know what this is? You know what they're doing to us? Alejandro's girlfriend thinks she hears their saviors crashing through the bush and goes to investigate, only to have a crude arrow pierce her throat. The rest of the group is hit with poison darts and sedated, only to wake up later, restrained and being led to the village of the very tribespeople the group came down to Peru to save. The Americans can't understand their language, can't defend themselves, and are, in some respect, the polar opposite of these people. Most have their bodies painted red, while others, the elders, are coated in black. They have bones in their noses and other body modifications that the tattoo and piercing shops of New York City could only dream of. They are, essentially, the definition of the other. But here's the irony. As the locals are the majority, the Americans with their unpainted skin and heavy clothing are the other, aren't they? What follows could, to the average moviegoer, seem like baseline torture porn. And they would, in some ways, be right. The Green Inferno was written and directed by Eli Roth, the man who, with 2005's Hostel, essentially created the torture porn subgenre. The graphic nature of what befall these naive activists is, even for some of the more hardened horror buffs, hard to stomach. Pardon the pun. We here at Dr. Scarelove will spare the gory details and recommend, if you are so inclined, peeking through fingers to watch it for yourself. 
What separates this film from the pack Roth originally spearheaded is what the violence and gore is in service of. The film, while making a modern statement about society, is also an homage, a love letter to the cannibal exploitation films of the 70s and 80s. Specifically, Cannibal Holocaust by the seminal Ruggiero Deodato that was originally filmed under the working title of The Green Inferno. Growing out of a larger movement to shock and offend audiences, the cannibal boom was a direct offshoot of Mondo cinema. Although the term Mondo is often used now to describe things being extreme or over the top, it is important to remember that the word actually is Italian for world, as in films from all around the world. These would often expose viewers to custom and practices from unfamiliar and to them strange cultures for entertainment purposes. Also called shockumentaries, they began to take on darker and darker subjects to increase ticket sales. How many people remember Faces of Death? This is a more modern example, but its roots extend much further back. Haxen, the Danish film about witchcraft from the 1920s, shocked audiences. But what about some of the more prolific names in literature? Mark Twain and Harriet Beecher Stowe in America often wrote sensational and, for the time, shocking explorations of foreign and domestic practices so very different from quote-unquote civilized society. What this boils down to is that people are hungry to see how others live, and if it's seen as barbaric or gruesome, all the better, because they can feel above these other societies, more refined, their moral caliber that much stronger. What we have with Roth's Inferno, while noting that it is exploitative, and probably not the most accurate representation of uncontested South American peoples, is a twofold exploration of people's need for the graphic depictions of the darker side of human nature. On one hand, viewers watch the live dismemberments and feel shocked by its realism, like slowing down for a car accident, but at the same time feeling relieved that they aren't the unfortunate victims. On the other hand, we yearn to see how others live, how their practices differ so much from our own, like scrolling through Wikipedia for minute details about Jeffrey Dahmer while feeling superior because we don't practice cannibalism. Of course, we aren't comparing the indigenous people's cultural behaviors, which to them aren't wrong but normal, to those of psychopathic serial killers, but rather that the desire to feel separate from those with wholly different lifestyles. In doing so, Roth is able to capture attention from multiple angles, but he isn't content merely drowning his audiences in blood and viscera. No, once he's reeled us in with our own rubbernecking nature, he's able to deliver his underlying message about the dangers of quote-unquote vanity retweeting and of misguided activism spurred on by selfish leaders and the chaos of what going viral really means. I mean, but what really brought about Green Inferno was this new form of activism that I call slacktivism, this sort of reactive social justice warrior has been the latest term for it, where people are just retweeting and liking things and kind of feeling very smug about it. And I just saw a lot of this happening. It started around Occupy Wall Street, which is a, you know, this important moment in culture and time. And a relative was like, my, I was like, what, didn't he graduate school? And my mom's like, oh, no, he's occupying. It's like, really? Because it didn't seem like he was that mad about anything before. And he said, well, 
you know, he goes there with his friends. They meet girls. You know, that's what they do. And it's like, okay, that's that's they do. Great. So, I, and then I, after I was writing the script um, about protesters who, you know, are more interested in getting recognized for caring about a cause than the cause itself, Coney 2012 started. And Coney 2012 was this moment when everyone got so self-righteous on Twitter and started shaming you of, like, if you haven't retweeted this, then you must love child soldiers. Like, you really, like, wait. What's wrong with you? Don't you care about Hollywood a-hole? Look at you in Hollywood, not tweeting about Joseph Coney. These people that have never heard of him 24 hours earlier. And then three weeks later, it's Free Pussy Riot. And don't you care about freedom of speech? And look what Vladimir Putin did to these girls. And it's so horrible. Free Pussy Riot. Then it's Bring Back Our Girls. And don't you care about Boko Haram? Don't you care about what's going on in this, this thing that everybody's tweeting, like retweeting defensively because they don't want to look... Like, they don't care. Everyone's like, oh, no, I care. See, I retweeted. So I wanted to make a movie about students like that. These kids that go get involved with the cause, that think they can just go in, save the Amazon, not because they really care about saving the Amazon, but because they care about looking like they care. The moment that they are happiest is not when they shut down the protest and save the village. It's when they're retweeted by CNN. It's when they're trending on Twitter. And it's when they're making the homepage of Reddit. They're like, that's it. Game over. <laughs> Those are the people I want to see crash in the jungle and just get eaten. Because from the point of view of the villagers, they're just invaders. They just see them as people dressed in construction suits, tearing up their land, and they've crashed in their backyard. They're going to punish them like invaders. So that's what's fun for me is the clash of cultures. What is the whole point of filmmaking? To get people to watch the film. Of course, we hope that it's done for the love of the art, although individuals like Michael Bay and the cash of summer blockbusters might make us think otherwise. But we cannot ignore that there are many people who do it simply for fame, notoriety, and publicity. When thinking about Coney 2012, what better way to gain attention than about a cause people will care about? So we are left to question whether or not the movement was entirely genuine or if it was for personal gain. Definitely not something you want in connection with mass murder and genocide of multiple different countries. Jason Russell was the face and director of the campaign. In the height of the film's viral popularity, he was arrested in San Diego, California for taking off his clothes in the middle of the day vandalizing cars, making sexual gestures, and giving people the middle finger, all caught on video and, of course, uploaded online, which, you can imagine, went viral. A statement from his family said it was because of his recent viral fame. He suffered brief psychosis, an acute state brought on by extreme exhaustion, stress, and dehydration. While this is entirely plausible, and we are not questioning that fact, what is questionable is this idea of fame. The sort of fame a 24-hour news cycle and the global connectivity of Twitter and YouTube affords you. Russell became the face of Coney 2012, and people knew who he was. People thought of him as the good guy, making a stand for what was right. But was the way he alerted the public about the horrific events happening in Africa done in the right way? Entirely unselfish. Not really. In The Green Inferno, we can see similarities between Russell and Alejandro, even down to the latter's decision to masturbate in their bamboo cell while others attempt to escape, citing his need for relaxation. Their behaviors can be seen as misguided and, in some regard, selfish. While both, deep down, have good intentions, 
Those intentions are clouded by viral fame fueled by social, environmental, and political injustice. They have the ability to get people to listen to them through their charisma and good looks. But deep down, we have to realize that if they really wanted to make change, they would urge people to do much more than quote-unquote raise awareness. How much is retweeting something or liking a photo or a video really going to change? Sure, you get people to care about an issue. Maybe some people will donate money. But unfortunately, it doesn't go much further than that. What does change, however, is your status of fame. The last to survive the horrendous ordeal, of course, are Justine and Alejandro, one still in the cell and the other with a clear exit from the village. As Alejandro pleads for her to let him out, Justine turns her back on him and escapes, and thus shuns the very behavior that got her into the situation in the first place. This is his bed, and he can lay or masturbate or whatever the hell else he'd like to do in it. Justine makes it back to the group of gas company workers and armed militia. She's saved from execution by the security force, once again because of the phone between them. There is a difference, though. This time, she shows them that she is not filming and not making the situation go viral once again, but smashing the device on a nearby rock. This gesture is taken by the militia leader well, and he makes sure she is returned to the United States safely. While he is probably just happy about his job being made easier without more internet outrage, this can also be seen as a reference to the notion that there are other ways of making a difference than to stir up the digital pot. Justine's story is a cautionary one about the pitfalls of getting yourself into a situation that you are completely unprepared for. And if we've learned anything in the past 25 years, is that the internet is famous for doing exactly that. Finally, Justine tells those concerned that the group were killed in service of their mission and died bravely, while the innocent tribespeople were slaughtered by the greedy corporation. The logic here is that divulging the cannibalism and torture would turn the internet's vitriolic eye on the tribe and bring justifications for their genocide, while they were, in their own way, only doing what they've always done. It was the misguided and unprepared college activists that stumbled into their home and became a part of their rituals. The problem, however, is that as the movie ends, Justine sees another group of activists on the university lawn screaming about yet another cause, only this time Alejandra's face is emblazoned on their shirts. The man was made into a martyr. This ultimately leaves us with a lasting notion. Even if we could put a stop to the reliance of the internet, the need for fame and trending status, humanity will always produce another Alejandro, eager to use that to his advantage, just as there will always be another foreign culture to be misunderstood and exploited. Research for this episode was conducted by Dr. Krista Marie DeBanke and Dr. Drew Atana, co-founders of the Scarelove Society, with invaluable assistance provided by the Library of Miskatonic University, where Dr. Scarelove's writings are housed.
The Scarelove Society welcomes listener support with liking, sharing, and subscribing through iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you discover your podcasts. The Society also has a Patreon dedicated to the preservation and distribution of Dr. Scarelove's ideas. Each donation also ensures membership into the Scarelove Society itself. Every click and donation is greatly appreciated and works toward ensuring usually closed doors remain open. For more information and source material of this or any episode, please visit drscarelove.com.